not sure how you felt about Easter uh, growing up, but for me, Easter was never on my list of favorite holidays. Um, if I could be honest and candid, I would tell you that as a kid, I really didn't like the holiday at all. And the reason I've never told anybody that is because some of you are looking at me the way you're looking at me right now. I see the disgust, I see the judgment, and, and I know you're thinking, you know, it's Easter. How could you not love Easter? It's Easter. Well, I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this and I've got about three good reasons why I didn't like Easter growing up. And I've just needed some folks to vent this to, and I'm so glad you showed up today. Um, and uh, I figured you were here to listen, so I've got some things to say. But I was thinking about this and just as a kid, I didn't like the holiday. Uh, I didn't like really anything that was attached to it. One was because of the Easter ensemble. Um, there, there was nothing worse than waking up on Easter morning. Waking up on Easter morning was nothing like waking up on Christmas morning. When you woke up on Easter morning, you would leave your bedroom and you would find the Easter outfit that your mother has chosen for you to wear. You got zero input, you had zero influence in the situation and it just wasn't an outfit, it was an Easter outfit. I mean, those were Easter shoes, those were Easter socks, those were Easter pants, Easter shirt, Easter jacket, Easter with all the fixings. And I'm telling you, it was just, it was just horrible. And you'd walk in there as a young boy and you'd be like, oh God, this is terrible. You know, you don't, you don't believe me? Well, I've got pictures. Uh, this is me and my mom. You know, because Easter, you always, you always gotta take pictures, right? And, and you know, of course, uh, what wouldn't, you know, spring wouldn't be spring without us out at our spring garden. And that was so natural. Uh, that's what we often did. But there I am in a three-piece suit at about four years old, uh, sweaty, clammy, I'm sure. Uh, it's like being mummified as a child. And, and especially if you're one of those children with energy, it's like you just, you just want to spontaneously combust. I mean, it was, it was horrible, horrible. Uh, here's a picture of me and my mom on the couch that I was conceived on. And uh, I'm just kidding. Just making sure you're actually listening. Uh, though, I guess, you know, Anyway, so that's me and my mom again. I do have a dad. Uh, this is my dad on, on the same couch. And, and I look at these pictures. I know you're actually laughing at me in front of me. That's okay, I understand. I, but I, I remember, you know, this vaguely, but now that I look back on it, I, I think to myself, am I on my way to trying out for like a, a, a role of being Benny Hinn's nephew? I mean, what is going, it's like some of you don't know, don't worry about it, it's not important. But, and it's like the comb over, have you ever seen a comb over that big on a child that small? I mean, it literally goes from ear to ear. It, I've, I've got children, I've got two boys. I would never do this to them. <laughs> And it's like borderline abuse. And, and you know, it's just not you. you. You walk into the other room of the house and there's your dad. There's your dad who always just wore Levi's, right? I don't know, you know, kind of what your dad's style was. But when I was young, my dad oftentimes, uh, because he, he did tobacco back in those days, he would have a, a thing of skull in, in his back pocket. And even when he didn't have the skull in his back pocket, those jeans were so well fitted, you could still see the shadow of the skull on the back pocket. And then you would walk into the living room and there's your dad that hardly you've ever seen without Levi's. He's wearing a pair of Dockers with more pleats than belt loops. Uh, and, and he's got like a pink pastel shirt on. And, and it's then you realize who's really in charge of this house. It's mom. 
because she's picking everybody's clothes. And then you go to church and, and it looks like, you know, just a, a pastel convention. Nobody's comfortable. It's the worst service of the year. Nobody could see the stage because of all the flowers they put on the stage and all the hats that are on top of the women's head in the seats. And oftentimes a lot of their hats actually had flowers on top of it. So it was like nobody could see anything. And the only good thing about the day was the egg hunt. The finance committee, who's usually cheap, they put four $50 bills out there. And it's like, okay, you're living for this as a little boy. I mean, you know, you got a strategy, you're, you're, you're kind of aggressive, you're ready to knock some people over if they're not fast enough or agile enough. And then right before they turn you loose, what does mom do? She pulls you aside, don't you get that outfit dirty? It's like, what? It's like, what? How, how am I supposed, I can't fully commit to this. I can't possibly, you know, it's just a terrible day. Then there's the jokes, the Easter jokes. The deacons, you know, they'd always open up the service on, on Easter and, you know, inevitably want to get up there and try to find a really great joke that he's found. So, you know, I, I heard about a son-in-law who went to, with his family uh, over to the Holy Land and his mother-in-law went. And while they were over there, the mother-in-law died. And they looked at the son-in-law and said, hey, you got two choices when it comes to your dead mother-in-law. You can ship her back to the States for $5,000 or we can bury her over here for 150. And he stopped for a moment and the son-in-law looked up and said, I'll tell you, I'm not a big man of faith, but I remember you know, a story about y'all burying a man over here once and he came back to life in three days. I can't chance it, send her back. <laughs> You know, it would be that. I mean, sometimes they were good, sometimes they were not. And then, you know, then you, you know, pastors would try to do children's church. You remember that? You know, get the little children together for the children's sermon. And I'm just telling you, I, we won't do that here. And we don't do that here because you can't control children. It was like, you know, the pastor who asked the kids up front in front of everybody, just their eavesdropping, got their cameras. They think it's so cute. And, you know, what do you kids know? About, anybody know anything about Easter? Anybody know anything about Easter? And little Johnny raises his hand and, you know, the pastor says, okay, uh, what do you know about Easter, John? He said, not much, but I know if you have a resurrection for more than four hours, you're supposed to go to the hospital. <laughs> Some of you are not sure whether you're supposed to laugh or not. Some of you just decided you're never coming back and that's okay. You probably needed to know. You probably needed to know that this is not your church, but I hope you will. I hope you'll come back. It's not always like that. And then you got the Easter bunny and I, you know, I could just talk about a mammal bringing eggs to your door or a big giant rodent-like thing sneaking in your house and wandering around and how weird that, the whole thing was just dumb to me. But that was then. But now as an adult, not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Jesus follower, I love Easter. And every year I love Easter a little bit more because it's the one week of the year. It's the one weekend of the year. It's the one day of the year when whether you call yourself Christian or not, you're confronted with the basic claim of Christianity and you're brought face to face with what I think is the most important question that anybody could ever ask or seek to answer. And it's the question of why Jesus? Why Jesus, who was a historical figure? There, there's no serious scholar in the world, I hope you know this, there's no serious scholar in the world, in any field of study, who doesn't believe that Jesus was a historical figure. He was a historical figure. But why Jesus, a historical figure? Why has he become the most dominant figure in all of world history? Why has more books been written about him and why have more songs been sung to him and why, why have more movies been filmed about him and more paintings been painted of him than anybody else in all of history? Why Jesus? Why Jesus and not another religious system? 
Why Jesus and not Buddha? Or why Jesus and not Muhammad? Or why Jesus and not Confucius? Why anything at all? Why do Christians follow Jesus? Why do Christians take the words of Jesus seriously? Why do Christians all around the world believe that Jesus was more than a teacher and a prophet and a good man, but they believe that Jesus was the son of God? Why do Christians believe that Jesus' death on the cross, on a Roman cross, why do they believe that his death was somehow of cosmic significance, universal consequence? Why do Christians believe in life after death? And why do Christians believe that one day that the whole world is gonna be remade and it's gonna be absent of sin, sorrow, and death? Why Jesus? And the answer must be, the answer has to be, the only logical conclusion is the resurrection. Why Jesus? The resurrection. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. It's the one thing that everything else Christian rises and falls on. If the resurrection isn't true, you wouldn't care about Jesus. If the resurrection wasn't a thing without any claim of resurrection, you wouldn't care about Jesus. You wouldn't care about who he was. You wouldn't care about what he said. You wouldn't care about what he did. Now you may recognize the name Tiberius Caesar, who was the most important person on the planet while Jesus of Nazareth walked on the earth. But the only reason you probably recognize the name Tiberius Caesar is because he's included in the story about Jesus. You recognize the name of a Roman governor in Palestine named Pontius Pilate. But the reason that you recognize that name from history is that he is included in the story of Jesus. Without the resurrection, you wouldn't care about Jesus of Nazareth, what he said or what he did. Without the resurrection, there wouldn't be any such thing as Christians. There'd be no such thing as the Bible. There'd be no such thing as the church. Without the resurrection, there'd be no such thing as Christmas because why would we celebrate the birth of a carpenter who was born to a teenage peasant girl in the Middle East in the first century? We just wouldn't do it. Without the resurrection, there'd be no such thing as Good Friday because why would we celebrate the death of someone who was sentenced to death by the state? And without the resurrection, we would consider Jesus's death just that, an execution carried out by the state, not some sacrifice for sin. Why Jesus? The resurrection. And this is the one day that everybody gets to pull aside and the world pulls aside and they're confronted with the central idea of Christianity. Why Jesus? The resurrection. This is the basic proposition of the New Testament. The question that the New Testament is asking is why Jesus? The answer that the New Testament is providing is the resurrection. It is the central proposition of the four gospels and specifically it is the central proposition of the gospel according to Matthew. A former tax collector who became a follower of Jesus. And when Matthew wrote his gospel, when he wrote his biography of Jesus, he had a very simple idea that he wanted to communicate to all of his readers and to the world. He wanted to tell the story about a king, a king who came to this world to save the world. That was the story that he wanted to tell. It was the story of a king who came to save the world. And so Matthew begins his biography with a place that we only read usually at Christmas. He tells us about the wise men or the magi, and he says they were on a journey in a quest to find the newborn king of the Jews. And Matthew presents to us the genealogy of Jesus, the parts of the Bible we don't typically read, the begats and the begats and the begats, which had a lot of legal consequence. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was a legal descendant of Abraham and a legal descendant of David. 
which meant that David, the one who was king over Israel, that his heirs would have a legal claim to his throne to which Jesus was one of those heirs. And so he presents Jesus as this newborn king of the Jews and then he fast forwards like 30 years. And then we find Jesus who is being baptized by his cousin John and John introduces Jesus to the world. And he says, behold, the lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. And when Jesus came up out of that water, he began to preach and Matthew said, this is what he began to preach. He started to preach at that time, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And with these words, Jesus was announcing an invasion of sorts, an invasion of heaven upon the earth. The kingdom of heaven had come near. Heaven had come near because God, Emmanuel, had come near. The kingdom had come near because the king had come near. And this marked the beginning, according to Jesus, of a brand new era. A new day was beginning to dawn and everything about everything was about to change. And with this announcement, lines were being drawn and sides would have to be chosen and allegiances would have to be declared because when the kingdom of God comes near, when the king comes near, there is no neutral ground. Everyone was gonna be invited to rethink how they think about everything. Everybody was gonna be invited to reorganize their lives around a new ethic, a new value system that is based on the vision of this king. Matthew tells the story of how the kingdom of God had come near and the king was inviting everyone into it, no matter who you were and no matter what you had done. Now, this message, it attracted some, but it offended others. Uh, some found it encouraging, others found it threatening. The unrighteous or the rule breakers or the people who weren't good at being good, the people who didn't attend temple, the people who didn't make sacrifices, the people who didn't read the scriptures, the people who didn't give offerings, just the unrighteous, the people who weren't good at being good. When they heard Jesus's words, they felt hope. When the self-righteous and the religious heard Jesus's words, they felt indignation. The irreligious loved what Jesus had to say. The religious, by and large, hated what Jesus had to say. Jesus had shown up and positioned himself as a friend to sinners, a friend of the irreligious. And in being a friend to the irreligious, he became the enemy of the religious establishment. The lines were being drawn, sides were being chosen, allegiances would have to be declared. There would be no neutral ground. This is the story Matthew tells in the first third of his biography. In the next part of his biography, he begins to zero in on the message and the ministry of Jesus. And he begins to talk about the controversy that Jesus caused. The more that Jesus spoke and the more that Jesus conducted his ministry, the more controversy followed him around. And it didn't help that when he had a large group of people, you know, together, some being religious and some being irreligious, he would, he would point at the religious people. He would point at the religious people and look at the irreligious people and say, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These religious people, they honor me with their lips. They sing their songs. They quote their scripture. They pray their prayers. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You know how I know their hearts are far from me? Because they dishonor people. 
They dishonor their neighbor. They abuse their neighbor. They malign their neighbor. They have no compassion, no mercy do they extend, no grace do they show. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the people in the crowd, some of them were offended by that. And there was controversy. Jesus would tell stories, he would tell parables. One parable he told about a wealthy landowner. And the wealthy landowner was a representation of God in the story. And he said, this wealthy landowner went out at the beginning of the workday and he hired a group of people to work all day for a full day's wages. And so the group came in and they started working. At midday, the wealthy landowner went out and found another group of workers and he hired them to work the rest of the day. And then right before quitting time, about an hour before everybody would stop work for the day, he went out and hired another group of people to come in and work that last little bit of the day. And Jesus said, when it came time to settle up with everybody, when it came time to pay everybody, the wealthy landowner paid everybody the same wage that everybody got paid for a full day's wages. And of course you understand the people who had worked hard all day, the people who felt like, hey, I get there early, I stay late. You know, I do what I'm supposed to do. They were offended by the story because they're like, well, why did the people who only worked half a day and the people who hardly worked any of the day, why are they getting the same amount as what we're getting? And Jesus was upsetting people's idea about God, their, their preconceptions about God because Jesus was saying that God is not a wage payer. He doesn't pay people based on their performance of how good they are, how bad they are. He gives gifts and everything that he gives, it's grace. Everything that he gives is undeserved. Nobody deserves anything. And people listen to that and some people said, that's amazing. And some people listen to that and said, that's terrible. And there was controversy. Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and everybody was cheering for him. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was a great day. The following day on Monday, Jesus walks into the temple. He walks into the temple and he overturns the money changers tables and he calls the temple a den of thieves. And you know who didn't like that? The leaders at the temple, the power brokers at the temple, the priests and the teachers and the religious scholars, they didn't like it. The following day on Tuesday, Jesus walks right back into the temple because that's how he was, he was a man's man. He was brazen. He was bold and he walked right back into the lion's mouth and on Tuesday, he's preaching and teaching and answering questions. And on Tuesday, I think Jesus got the most important question that he ever received that we have record of in the scripture. It was the question of what's most important to God? What's most sacred to God? What's the most important thing to God? What is God most concerned about? What, where does God put the most value? What's the most important thing to God? And Jesus said, I'll tell you, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Because there's nothing more sacred to God than your neighbor. There's nothing more valuable to God than your neighbor. Your neighbor has more value than your religion. Your value has, your, your neighbor has more value than your religious laws, than your customs, than your tradition, than your politics, than your, your, your positions on issues. Your neighbor is the most sacred thing to God because you can't say that you love God if you do not love your neighbor, all of your neighbors. The neighbors you like and the neighbors you dislike, the neighbors you agree with and the neighbors that you disagree with. And while he's teaching that the most important thing to God is how we love and treat our neighbor. Matthew says, let me give you 
a piece of irony. At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. While Jesus is teaching that the most important thing to God is loving our neighbor, the religious establishment, the power brokers, they are meeting and trying to concoct a plan to kill one of their neighbors. And that neighbor was Jesus. And this would be almost unbelievable, except it's so believable. Because we see things like this happen all the time. The powerful get corrupted by power. They abuse their power. And then because they have a very particular agenda, people get hurt who seemingly are in the way of that agenda. It's the way the world works. It's the way that history is. It's the way that the world is today. And this is not a story of make-believe. It doesn't have that feel. It's not that type of genre. It's not once upon a time in a land far, far away type of narrative. This is also strikingly human. It's so ordinary because this is life. This is how things are. This is how you've seen things play out. The powerful swallow up the vulnerable. The powerful take advantage of the vulnerable. This is a story that keeps repeating itself. This is not unbelievable. This is just incredibly believable. And we should all stop and think because we've all heard this a million times. We should all ask the question, why did they want Jesus dead? It wasn't because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. They didn't want Jesus dead because he said, forgive those who do you wrong or do for others as you would have them do for you. They wanted Jesus dead because he was a threat to their power, because he was a threat to their wealth, because he was a threat to their prestige, because he was a threat to their nation, to their politics, to their temple, to their tradition, and ultimately to their kingdoms. Lines were being drawn, sides were being chosen, allegiances would have to be declared. There was no neutral ground. And as we read the gospels, we discover that the ultimate problem wasn't what Jesus said or what Jesus did, it was who he claimed to be. That's why they wanted him dead. He claimed to be God, he claimed to be king. And when you claim to be king, a line is drawn. There's sides that have to be chosen. When you declare to be king, you're either for the king or you're against the king. Jesus, he claimed to be greater than the temple. He claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. He claimed, he said, I was before Abraham was. He claimed to have the ability to forgive sin. He claimed to be one with the Father. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when the religious establishment heard who he claimed to be, they said, he has to be stopped. And so Matthew begins to tell us about the betrayal. They decide that they need somebody on the inside. They, they need someone close to Jesus to help them stop Jesus. And so they put word out on the street. Judas hears about it and Judas comes to them and he says to them, what will you give me to betray Jesus? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. And he said, you've got a deal. We're talking about Judas who heard all of Jesus's sermons, who saw all of Jesus's miracles, who was handpicked by Jesus, trusted by his friends, the other disciples. And what stands out about Judas, we don't have time to talk about it, but what stands out about Judas isn't his villainy, it's his humanity. This is how ordinary life is. Because who among us, who among us doesn't know someone? 
We don't know a story where someone said, what will you give me to sell them out? And they had a price or they had a relationship or they had an agenda and someone got hurt because somebody wanted to get ahead. This is oh so strikingly human and ordinary because every single person, we know stories of betrayal. Many of us, we know firsthand the sting of betrayal. This is all so believable. And Matthew says, from that moment on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. On Thursday night, Jesus went to the upper room and they celebrated Passover. And it was there that Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this one thing, will everybody know that you're one of my disciples? It's because you love one another. Because greater love has no one than this, than one who would lay down his life for his friends. And they had no idea, but Jesus was about to put on a demonstration of his love for them and his love for you and his love for us and his love for the world that would take their breath away. But they didn't know it in the moment. He washed their feet that night. And when they finished in the upper room, they walked toward the garden of Gethsemane. And it was there that Jesus began to sense just how serious the moment was. He knew the suffering that was coming, the impending death that was approaching. And it was a reaction that many of us could absolutely relate to because it's so strikingly familiar. Jesus, he gets so anxious and so stressed that we're actually told in the scriptures that he developed what we now know as a medical condition that's brought on by severe anxiety where sweat becomes as drops of blood. Hematidrosis is what doctors call it. And he was so full of stress and anxiety in that moment because of the weight of his soon coming suffering and death. He takes his disciples to the garden and he takes his three closest, Peter, James, and John. And he said, guys, I'm carrying a weight. This is serious, I need you to help me pray. And he takes them further into the garden and he leaves them to pray. And then he goes a little bit further and that's when he prays the prayer that we've heard so many times. If it be your will, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Matthew says that he prayed it not once, but he prayed it twice. He would go back to check on Peter, James, and John. And each time he went back to check on them when he asked them to pray, they were sleeping because we all know that's true. Fastest way to fall asleep at night is just try to pray. How many of you Christians, you rededicated your life to pray and you decided, no, I'm gonna pray in the evening, I'm gonna pray in the evening, I'm gonna pray in the morning, I'm gonna pray in the evening. And then you'd lay down at night and then you'd start your prayer, Heavenly Father, it was like the best sleep you've ever had. But I absolutely believe this because this is like, yeah. And he goes back to Peter, James, John and wakes him up and says, guys, pray with me. And then he goes and prays again. And then he looks up. And in the distance, he sees torches that are on their way towards the garden. And he knows that those torches are carried by soldiers armed with clubs and swords, and Judas is with them. So he wakes up Peter, James, and John, and he walks through the darkness, and he walks in the very direction of those who were intent on arresting and killing him. A little bit of chaos breaks out because Peter was about half redneck. He pulled out a knife, he went to town. Jesus is trying to calm down the situation. It was like a brawl, you know, kind of a bar fight for just a moment and everybody got settled down. And then they took Jesus off and Matthew says, let me tell you what happened. Just let me tell you what happened next. I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not proud of this. And I can only imagine how difficult it was to write this into the story, but he said, then 
all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those of us who loved him most and knew him best, fearful of what could happen to us, we deserted him. Fearful that the price would be too high, we decided we didn't wanna pay because we weren't expecting this. This wasn't part of the bargain. We came into town on Sunday and everybody thought we were rock stars with Jesus. We thought we were headed to a coronation. We thought that things, we thought there was a whole other thing getting ready to happen, not this. And he says, we walked away. They took Jesus to the house of Caiaphas in a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And Matthew begins to tell us about the trials. Jesus will have no less than six hearings shortly after he's arrested and not a single one of them will be just or legal. Each one of them was a political sham in their own right. There were deals under the table, backroom handshakes, a wink, wink, and a shake, shake. Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Politicians and power brokers with an agenda. Not hard to believe. Actually, just quite ordinary and familiar. They decided that they would charge Jesus with blasphemy. And when they decided that he was guilty, they said that he was worthy of death. And Matthew says they began to beat him with their fists over and over and over again. And they spit in his face. But they realized they lacked the power to do the thing they wanted to do most, which was to kill him. For that, they would need the governor. They would need Pilate. So they took, them, took him to Pilate and they changed, the, they changed the charge from blasphemy to sedition to insurrection because there was only room for one king in the empire and his name was Tiberius. Rome would not tolerate any other claim of authority. They squashed it. And Matthew says, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Think long and hard, man, before you answer. There's only room for one king in this empire. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply said, you have said so. Another way of saying, it is as you say. But Pilate was a conflicted politician. He, he didn't wanna put Jesus to death. He knew that he was innocent. So he tried to find a way to get Jesus free. He knew there was a custom among the people that at times they would present two different people to the, to the crowd and they would get to pick which one got to go free. So he picked a guilty man by the name of Barabbas and he figured if he put Jesus out there who he believed was an innocent man, that the people would surely pick Jesus. And Matthew says, that Pilate said, what shall I do then? What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they all answered, crucify him. Because blood was in the water and the sharks were circling. And Pilate was a politician at heart. And politicians fear the shifting winds of popular culture. And so he washed his hands of the matter. And he says, it is as you wish. And he sentenced him to be flogged and to be crucified. Roman soldiers were surgeons when it came to a flogging. There was a leather whip usually three strings of that leather that was intertwined with bone and stone and glass. 
and they would whip someone 39 times. They were able to lacerate someone's back open from the back of their neck all the way down to the back of their ankles, exposing oftentimes tissue like, you know, tendons and ligaments and muscle and sometimes even down to the bone. And, And they brought people to within an inch of their life and they whipped Jesus 39 times and then they stood him up. And they said, oh, don't you look like a king? Look at this, guys, look at this king. Doesn't he look like a king? No, he doesn't look like a king. You know what a king needs? A king needs a robe. Hey, does anybody have a robe? Hey, how about that scarlet robe? Bring that scarlet robe. And they put it on his lacerated, filleted open back. And they're like, oh, he's looking more like a king now. And he, look at this, look at this scarlet robe. He's looking like a king, but it's not there yet. You know what else? What else does a king need? I'll tell you what a king needs. A king needs a crown. Hey, somebody go grab those thorns and let's put together this king a crown that he's worthy of. And they put together a crown of thorns and they crunched it on his head and blood began to pour over his face. And they're like, oh, that's more like it. Now a king with a robe and a king with a crown. This is amazing. But you still need something else. What does he need? What does he need? Oh, a staff, that's what he needs. They put a staff in his hand and then they bowed and they said, oh, hell, king of the Jews. Hell, king of the Jews. And they mocked him and they taunted him. And then they took the staff away and they beat him repeatedly over the head. And this went on for hours. And then they took him to Golgotha and they nailed his feet to the cross and his hands. And Matthew says a sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Jesus wasn't crucified for what he said or what he taught, or what he did. He did not get crucified because he said, love your neighbor as yourself. He was crucified because he claimed to be king. And when you claim to be king, lines are drawn, sides are chosen, allegiances are declared, and there's no neutral ground. Religion, not irreligion, put Jesus to death. Law, not lawlessness executed him that day. Jesus was killed because he was the greatest threat to the kingdoms of those who were in power. If he was king, they could no longer be king of their own lives. And so they taunted him on the cross, Matthew says. They would say things like, look at you now. You said you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests, teachers of religious law, the elders also mocked Jesus. They said, hey, he saved others, but he can't save himself. This is the king of Israel. Could Jesus have saved himself? In Jesus' own words, he said, even now I could call 12 legions of angels. But Jesus refused to save himself if it meant giving up the opportunity to save you and to save me. Jesus was a king whose greatest interest was not self-interest. His greatest interest was you and you and you and you and me. He refused to save himself because it would have meant giving up the opportunity to save us. And he hung there for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
And Matthew says at around 3 p.m. on Friday, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. The veil of the temple that separated the place where God was, the holiest of holies, from the people. And only one man, one time a year, was allowed to go back there, the great high priest, on the day of atonement when he made a sacrifice for sin. Matthew says, when Jesus died, it was as if God himself tore that veil in two from the top to the bottom saying, there is now unrestricted access. Everybody is invited in. Jew or Gentile, male or female, sinner or saint. Everybody is invited in. But Matthew, he's writing this after the fact, but on that day, at three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, no one walked away from the cross celebrating the cross. At a little after three o'clock on that Friday, nobody thought anything significant had happened save the death of their friend. No one walked away at three o'clock on Friday singing, I will cherish the old rugged cross. When Jesus died, so did their faith. When Jesus died, so did their hope. There were no Christians after three o'clock on Friday afternoon when Jesus was dead. And when Jesus said, it is finished, they believed every single word of it. He was finished. What he seemed to start was finished. And who they thought he was, was finished. Because he'd never looked less like a king then he looked in that moment as his corpse hung there on that cross. And that's the story Matthew tells. But as Matthew would say it, that's not the end of the story. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning and a new day it was, he says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven rolled aside the stone and sat on it. And then the angel spoke to her and spoke to the women and said, don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said it would happen. Come and see the place where his body was lying. Ladies, do you remember when Jesus said, if you tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it again. This is what he was talking about. You remember when he said, just as Jonah had to be in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. This is what he was talking about. He was predicting his own death and resurrection. So come in, investigate, get all the information you can because faith always begins with facts. And when you follow the facts of the first Easter, and when you follow the facts of the weeks after Easter, if you follow the facts in the direction they go, you just might discover faith along the way. Because even atheistic scholars and agnostic scholars all agree, almost without exception, that it is a historical fact that Jesus was a real person who died on a cross and was buried. Almost every single scholar who's serious, they all agree that Jesus, Jesus upon his death, that his disciples were despondent and hopeless that Jesus's tomb was empty and no one ever produced a body, that Jesus's followers believed they saw him resurrected from the dead and that whatever they believed they saw, it changed their 
life. Those are the facts. And you have to follow the facts. And maybe along the way, you might find faith as well. Matthew says, we were with him for the next six weeks. We ate with him. We went fishing with him. We held him. We hugged him. We listened to him. My faith became sight. It's irrefutable what I saw and what I touched. And at the end of those six weeks, Matthew and the other disciples emerged with a fearlessness of death, which has to be explained. Matthew said he took us out before he ascended back to his father and he told us to go to all the world and tell the world what we've seen and what we've heard, to tell people what I was taught by him, Matthew would say, to tell them that he died for sin, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day. And for those who believe to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's where Matthew's story ends, right there. And this is where I end it, with something we all know. What someone says is only part of the story. What they do next is the rest of the story. Matthew said, Jesus is savior. He is king. He died for the sins of the world. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. And for the next 15 years, he stays in Jerusalem doing exactly what Jesus told him to do, telling people, not what he believed, but telling people what he saw. After those 15 years, he traveled to North Africa and the best that we can tell from history and early church history, that he continued to preach exactly what he was an eyewitness of. And then the king of Ethiopia ordered that he quit upsetting the status quo, that he stopped telling the story that he was telling. And Matthew refused, recant. He refused to back down. And on orders of the king of Ethiopia, he was ran through with a spear at the altar, giving his life not for what he said he believed, but because of what he said he saw. And why would a man like Matthew die for something he knows was never true? But if it is true, the implications are staggering. If the resurrection is true, it means God exists. If the resurrection is true, it means that God loves you just as you are. It means there's forgiveness of sins, all sins, your sins, my sins. If, if the resurrection is true, it means it matters how we live our lives. Because Jesus said how we live our lives now, it matters in the life to come. If the resurrection is true, it means there's life after death and everyone spends forever somewhere. And if the resurrection is true, it means everything Jesus said is true. Our faith is anchored to an empty tomb. It's because of an empty tomb that we believe that there's hope no matter what. It's because there's an empty tomb that we believe that there's beauty beneath the ashes. 
that there's joy beyond the sorrow, that there's light on the other side of darkness. It's because of an empty tomb that we believe that failure isn't final, that God's grace is greater than our guilt, that love is greater than hate, that compassion is greater than condemnation, that forgiveness trumps bitterness. It's because of the resurrection that we believe that God is for us, even when life does not work out for us. It is because the tomb is empty that we believe all pain has a purpose, that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We believe our past is redeemed, our present makes sense, our future is secure. We believe that there's life after death because the tomb is empty, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is savior and he is king. And if he is king, the lines have been drawn. Sides are being chosen. Allegiances must be declared. There is no neutral ground. You are either for him or against him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to us for the next couple of moments. Father, wherever we are on our journey of faith or towards faith, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us in a really personal way. Let our minds not be distracted. Let our hearts not be divided. But God, in this moment, let us make ourselves available to what it is that you want to say to us. Let us listen to the words of this song as we sit here for the next couple of moments. And Lord, let us figure out what it is that we need to do in response to your word to us. In Jesus' name.